Hi, I'm Susan Swain, host of C-SPAN's Q&A, where we spend an hour with nonfiction writers and historians who add context to today's news. Our guest in this episode is Kathy Kleiman, whose new book, Proving Ground, tells the stories of the six women who programmed the world's first modern computer as part of the American effort to win World War II. She spent years tracing the history and contributions of these mostly unknown women. Kleiman is an attorney who specializes in internet technology and governance and who teaches at American University's Washington College of Law. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Kathy Kleiman, your new book, Proving Ground, began with a photograph many years back. We're going to look at that photograph and tell me what it was that intrigued you. This photograph is one that I saw when I was an undergraduate, and I was in computer science courses. And the early computer science courses had been mixed men and women, but by the time I got to the upper computer science courses, it was almost all men, sometimes completely men except for me. And this photograph was intriguing because it has men and women in the picture. Um, and I thought, that's really interesting. Who are the women? The men were in the captions, particularly the two in the front, Jay Presper Eckert on the left and John Mockley leaning on the pole on the right. Dr. John Mockley was the visionary of ENIAC, and he worked with Jay Presper Eckert to build it. Together, they were the team that led the construction and building. But who are the women, and what are they doing in the pictures? And I wanted to know, because if they did something technical, I really wanted to know, because I could use some role models at that point. And um, I took the photographs to my professor. He sent me to the co-founder of the Computer History Museum, and she told me they were models, and that um, that they weren't in the captions because they were just posed, they were just models. And I didn't think that was right, and I went looking for the people in the pictures, and I found them, and they weren't the models. All six of the original programmers of the ENIAC were, were young women hired by the Army during World War II. So what does this picture, what era does it date from? When was it taken? This picture was taken uh, in January of 1946. Uh, about six months after the war ends, the Army decides to reveal the existence of ENIAC. And so they took a number of press pictures, and they took the team. The team's working very hard to get ready for um, for demonstration day in February. And, um, and they're like, stop what you're doing. We're going to pose you around the computer. So that mostly the pose there, I think, to show the height of the computer. It was eight feet tall. 80 feet long. It's 30 tons. It's a huge machine. And uh, so they're just positioning people around it to make it look good. What does the name ENIAC stand for? ENIAC stands for Electronic Numerical Integrator and Computer. This was the world's first general purpose, programmable, all electronic computer. The first modern computer. It's really the great great grandfather or grandmother of everything we use today our smartphones, our laptops. In your book, you say that not only were women missing from IT history, but most of it focused on hardware, and these women were the software side or the programming side. 
That's right. So I wrote my junior and then my senior paper on on these women, and um, the the subtitle of my junior paper was "Men Are Hard and Women Are Soft." That men seem to be very involved in the hardware, the electrical engineers who built the ENIAC, but that there seemed to be a missing piece of computer history that had to do with software, and that seemed to be women. And so I was just discovering the tip of the iceberg when I was an undergraduate. But yeah, there seemed to be this this missing history of these of these incredible pioneers. Before we learn more about the women and their story. Tell me about your own, li- your own life and career. How did it progress from those undergraduate courses? So um, as an undergraduate, I, took, I majored in social theory and political theory and took a lot of computer science because when I went to college, my mother said, study anything you want, but computing is where the jobs are going to be. And of course, she was right. Computing is where the jobs are. And, um, but everyone kind of thought I was a little crazy. Um, what does social theory and political theory have to do with computer science? But I was interested in computers and ethics. And um, so after college, I went to Wall Street and I helped manage international data networks on Wall Street. And I was responsible for making sure data flowed to the New York offices of Morgan Stanley, as well as Hong Kong and Tokyo and London. Um, And that was a lot of fun. But as we were zipping the data around the world, I don't know if it was a mistake, but I asked, what are the laws about this data? And I was told there weren't any. And I said, there will be. And I started studying for law school. And I went to law school and came out and did telecommunications law for a while, which is wonderful. I came here to Washington, D.C., and my law firm was dedicated to work at the Federal Communications Commission. So I was doing satellite and microwave licensing and working with radio and television stations, too. It was fascinating. But an early Internet domain name dispute came across my desk And I thought, this is really interesting. It was really the electronic frontier. There was nothing there. And there were also no women there, for what it's worth. And I remember calling some of the ENIAC programmers and telling them that I wanted to go into this new field. And they said, of course, of course, you should go into this field. And they were pioneers, and they kind of supported me in going in. So it turns out 20 years later that I was one of the first uh, people and women into internet law and policy. And I helped create ICANN, the Internet Corporation for Assigned Names and Numbers. And we oversee and manage the uh, global domain name system. And it's been a fascinating career at kind of the cutting edge of internet policy and helping shape and write it. And now I teach internet technology and governance for lawyers. And I try to bring in uh, young men and women uh, to, to the field of technology policy because it's so interesting. Well, if your story and the story of the ENIAC women was one of not very many women in the field, what's it like today? Computing in general is still having problems. We see it all over the place in articles and stories that there's a pipeline problem. The K through 12, kindergarten through 12th grade, it's still boys taking the computer science classes that then prepare them for the college computer science classes. So there are you know huge groups, wonderful groups like CS for All and others that are really working to um, break the stereotypes of men only in computing and encourage uh, girls and anyone who doesn't fit the traditional stereotype of computing to take the courses in K through 12. And there's all sorts of mentorship groups. If you take computer science in college, they want you to finish the program and go on to jobs. So there's all sorts of mentoring through that process. So that's great. And in technology policy, we founded Women of the DNS, Women of the Domain Name System, and try to encourage and mentor women in technology policy. Um, And then there are lots of other initiatives like that. So we're trying to bring everybody in. On the pipeline question, so there's been an emphasis on STEM education for at least the last 15, 20 years now. So what is it really going to take to encourage girls 
to pursue this kind of courses in school? It's going to take breaking the stereotypes that are still reinforced in our media, unfortunately. How do I know that? Because my own children came through. My, my daughter in middle school came home and said, I can't do math and I can't do computing. I'm like, wait a second. You know the ENIAC programmers. Um, and something was coming through. She had done well in mathematics before that. And so what, what was what was what was happening? And from what we can figure out, it's, it's the, the stereotypes that you don't see women in STEM, uh, or you didn't at the time, um, in, on television. And maybe that had something to do with it. It's also a stereotype that many of us have inculcated, that many teachers have inculcated, and frankly, that many historians have inculcated. So we keep resharing the same stereotypes. Um, I think it would help to break them and also just to show lots and lots of extraordinary women in computing who exist today and have them come and talk to younger, younger so people. So turning to the ENIAC women, when they went to college right, right around 1940, first of all, how frequently did women go to college and these women all were math-oriented? How unusual was that? Everything was very unusual. So this was, um, most of them actually went to college during the Depression and uh, towards the end of the Depression, as you note. And um, about 5% of men went to college at the time. It was, it was less for women. It was about 3 to 4%. And these women are coming from immigrant backgrounds. They're, uh, they're not coming from wealthy backgrounds. Um, and so to go to college was extraordinary. They got full scholarships, almost all of them. And they were very interested in mathematics. They were told to major in something you really like. And even though there weren't a lot of job opportunities for women in mathematics at the time, because most of the traditional jobs we think of for mathematicians, accounting and bookkeeping and actuary were for men, um, they majored in what they wanted. And um, and, and graduated, but they had a lot of support from their, their families who believed that both uh, girls and boys should go to college. So let's learn about the first two of them, starting with Kay McNulty. What's her background? So Kay McNulty came from Ireland when she was three years old, and she didn't speak a word of English. And she came, her father had come before, and he was a mason, and uh, he was doing a lot of the construction of the new suburbs in Philadelphia at the time. And he brought his family, and um, there's a long story there about how they left. Um, and he brought his family, and she was, she was raised in, in the Philadelphia suburbs, and grew up, went to a, a Catholic girls' high school, and then went on to Chestnut Hill College for women, and she was one of three math majors in her class. Did she show a, 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 an interest in math at a very early age? Oh, she showed a, a real aptitude for math and technology. She was the one who fixed her mother's iron when the uh, when the flood got unplugged, and uh, she uh, she rode a bicycle through her neighborhood. Uh, she said that she was the first woman to get um, her license in the area. The first of her friends to get her license. Her brothers had gotten the, their their driving license. She wanted to too, and um, she was always doing math. Apparently, she would go down to the corner store, even as, as a young girl, to pick up a few things for her mother. And uh, the women at the corner store added up, um, if you've ever seen it in the old days, sometimes um, uh, people would add up the totals, you know, the different prices on a paper bag with a pencil, and she could add them up faster in her head than they could do on, um, on the paper bag. And they said, you know, you, you've really got a real knack for this. So introduce me to Frances, is it Bilas that she pronounces her last name? Frances Bilas. And what was her life story? 
So Fran was also living in a Philadelphia suburb, um, and she she grew up uh, with. In, she was first generation. Her parents came from Eastern Europe, and uh, also you know a tremendous aptitude for mathematics, tremendous interest. She got a full scholarship to the same school Kay went to, Chestnut Hill College for Women, and um, became best friends with Kay and, and with the the third woman math major in their group. The both of them graduated in 1942 as math majors. I was really interested in your description of what what Philadelphia and I'm sure other cities on the East Coast were like during the war, because it's, it's an experience that all the rest of us born since then have never had in this country. You said the war felt very close to home for people. Can you describe that? Well, it did. It felt close to home in two ways. One was everyone knew someone who was going off to war, right? This was uncles and brothers and fathers and cousins. So everyone knew someone who was going either, you know, to the Atlantic or the Pacific. And so everyone wanted to help. Everyone wanted to get involved. But... um Later in the war, the war would feel very personal to Philadelphia because the submarines are coming closer and closer to Philadelphia, and Philadelphia goes into blackout mode. And I've never experienced this, but you had to buy special blinds for your windows so that that you pulled down at night so that the light from the apartments wouldn't go, shine onto the streets and um, the street lights were dimmed and this was all to make it uh, hard to target the city of Philadelphia uh, should um, should somebody be trying to, to bomb it. Yeah, the German U-boats were right off of the coast of Philadelphia. Uh, and one of the reasons Philadelphia was so interesting was because of the presence of the Philadelphia Naval Yard. What was happening there? Uh, the Philadelphia Naval Yard was building a lot of ships. They they had a lot of um, uh, supplies going in and out. Um, and actually, some of those supplies would be requisitioned and sent off to help build the ENIAC. So we know a, a little bit about their supply yards as well. So when Kay McNulty and Francis Fran Bielas graduated from Chestnut Hill College, around that time, the Army was running ads in the Philadelphia newspaper looking specifically for women math majors. So why were they looking for women? The Army was looking for women because they didn't have enough men. They needed someone to calculate complicated ballistics trajectories. This is the path that it takes for a missile to leave the muzzle of a gun to hit a target. And it turns out that for the howitzers, these are big cannons that can go 8 to 14 miles, um, weather in the battlefield has a big impact on the arc of the trajectory. But a differential calculus equation that had actually been created during World War One could, if, if you knew if you had a weather unit measuring the weather in the battlefield and you plug that in to the equation along with the target you're trying to hit, along with the gun and the missile, and you calculated it for 30 or 40 hours, you could figure out pretty accurately what angle to aim the gun to hit that target. But you never know this stuff ahead of time, so all of these calculations had to be pre-calculated and put into a firing table for lots of different variations of weather. And there was no computers that could do this, so they hired people and gave them these desktop mechanical calculators about that big, big, heavy things with gears. They made a lot of noise as they turned and said, okay, you're calculating the ballistic trajectories, one after another after another. And each calculation would take 30 to 40 hours to finish. Yep. Wow. Uh, the two young women were hired on the spot by the Army. Uh, what was their title and what was their starting salary like? 
So they interviewed with the Army. They weren't told really what they were going to be doing, but their title was computer, capital C. They were computers uh, because they would be computing these ballistics trajectories. And their salary was about $1,200. Um, a year it would go up to about sixteen hundred, and in um, today's dollars or that's, no, no, they're, they're, they're so dollars. today's dollars it was. Uh, I think I looked in your book somewhere around twenty seven thousand, thirty thousand dollars a year right. to start for college graduates with, who were hard to find math math majors. Um, were uh, but believe it or not, that was much more than a secretary or a clerical person was making. Mm-hmm. So let's introduce a couple more of the women because there are six in total. Betty Snyder. Betty Snyder. So Betty, I got to know very well because she lived in Rockville, Maryland, which is, is close to here. So Betty grew up in a suburb of Philadelphia. Her father and her grandfather were both math teachers and astronomy teachers, and there was a great interest in the family in science and math and languages. Um, and she went to the University of Pennsylvania in one of the early co-ed classes, and she was really disappointed because the classes weren't co-ed, even though it was supposed to be. It was a big deal that women were entering the University of Pennsylvania. But her classes were all women, and she started in mathematics, loved mathematics. That's what she was going to major in. And she had an old professor who opened every class with, you women should be home raising children. And uh, all she had to do was get through the end of that semester, and she was going to keep going in mathematics. And then she found out he was the only professor of the next course in mathematics for women. She said, that's enough. And she became, she studied journalism and history and English, and, but kept her love of mathematics. Marilyn Westcoff joined the group. Marilyn Westcuff did join the group. She was actually already at the University of Pennsylvania. She was already at the Moore School of Electrical Engineering. Um, So she did not major in mathematics. She majored in education and minored in business. But when she was getting close to graduating, um, the dean of, of the School of Education said that if you were Jewish, you shouldn't bother to apply for the jobs that were opening in education. So she thought, well, what do I do now? And she had a a business minor, and she had learned to use adding machines. And she went over, and she helped Army radar projects at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, And she was using the adding machine, and when that project closed up, because the person who headed it, Dr. John Mockley, was moving to another secret project that was ENIAC, um, he said, hey, you should apply to this group of computers down the hall, and uh, I think you'll get a job. And I think he put in a good word for her. We have two more. both joined a little bit later, I think. Ruth Lichterman? Ruth Lichterman is um, also a math major. She comes down from Hunter College. She's recruited in 43. She's the only one that doesn't graduate college. She's actually recruited during the war. It's rather incredible that um, she leaves after her second year because she wants to help the war effort. And she moves from New York City, kind of a very close family environment, New York City to Philadelphia and becomes part of the third floor computing group where Marlon is, and Marlon's family kind of adopts Ruth. And the last one was also the last to join, but I want to get them all on the on the map so we can talk to, about them later. Jean Jennings. Jean Jennings comes from a farm in Missouri, and she comes the longest way, but... Had never been off the farm before that, is that right? Well, she'd gone to Northwest Missouri State Teachers College, now Northwest Missouri State University, but that was about half an hour down the road. Um, so she really hadn't left the Missouri area. But um, the she sees an ad. She's graduating late. She graduates in, 40, in, in uh, December 44. And she's trying to figure out what to do. And... Uh, 
a professor, a female mathematics professor, shows her a, a math journal, and there's kind of a posting in the back that said the Army's looking for math majors, very similar to what Kay saw a few years earlier. And she said, I'm going to apply for that job in Philadelphia. She had never been anywhere close. And uh, when she's accepted, she's, she hops on a steam-powered train and comes to Philadelphia and never goes back. She stays in Philadelphia. You know, she goes back to visit, but she stays in Philadelphia for the rest of her life. Their computing program, their trajectory analyses were all based at the University of Pennsylvania and the Moore School. Yes. What was the relationship between the Moore School and the Army? They had a close relationship. So the Army, and here we're talking about Aberdeen Proving Ground, which is located in Aberdeen, Maryland. It's um, on 95 North, just before basically you get to the Maryland-Delaware border. So northern Maryland, very rural, and it's where the Army has traditionally tested um, artillery, including heavy artillery like these cannons. Now some of that has moved out west. But they they tested, and um, this is where the calculations had taken place uh, during World War One and between World War One and World War Two, but if you're the Army and you want to recruit young women to do the mathematics calculations, you're probably not going to want to, to try to recruit them into rural Maryland in the middle of the swamps. And so they decided to relocate the project up to Philadelphia. And Aberdeen Proving Ground already has these other projects, like radar projects and other projects, with the University of Pennsylvania, with the Moore School of Electrical Engineering during World War II. So they're really kind of co-sharing the space with the school where enrollment has gone way down. So there's open space. And it makes sense to co-locate these projects with physicists and engineers and you know budding young engineers. Engineers, um, because it provides more people to work for the Army projects. So there was a really real synergism of, of that relationship during the war. Now, you tell the story of the six because of their role with ENIAC, but at its height, how many young women were working at the Moore School, uh, working on various projects related to military issues? At the height, there were 80 to 100 computers, and they were working two shifts a day. So one shift would come in in the morning and leave about 4.30 in the afternoon. The other shift would come in, and uh, they would leave about 1 o'clock in the morning. Yeah, and you, you explained because of the blackouts that they would walk home in total darkness. Marlin told stories of the um, nighttime air warden coming to meet her from the trolleys and uh, she, who would walk her home because it was pretty dark in the streets then. By 1943, you write, it was apparent that their trajectory analyses weren't coming fast enough for the war effort. So what happened? Well, there are just too many trajectories to calculate um, because the Army is introducing major improvements to existing cannons and whole new artillery. So they need thousands more calculations, many more than could be calculated. So the Army decides to fund the existence of this really experimental idea of Dr. John Mockley and J. Presper Eckert, this first general purpose, programmable, all-electronic computer. It would have tens of thousands of vacuum tubes. They were told by the senior people in the field, Watson Sr. and Howard Aiken, a senior professor at Harvard, that it would never work, and why are they wasting their money? But the Army thought, if there's a chance, it was 43, we're still in the dark days of the war, we need these firing tables, um, and we need them to be accurate, and we need them for the new guns. So if there's any chance that this new technology would work and help speed up the calculations, they'll, they'll, they'll throw the money at it. And so um, spring of 43, John and Press get the contract, and they start building, of course, at the Moore School at the University of Pennsylvania, they start building the ENIAC on the first floor. And um, by uh, 
by spring, summer of 45, it's ready to go. So Dr. John Mockley, uh, w- w- had been teaching at the Moore, Moore School, what was his role there? And then tell me about Press Eckert as well. So Dr. John Mockley was a physicist trained at Hopkins, and he was teaching at Ursinus College um, outside of Philadelphia, kind of, you know, farther out. In, and he was rec- he came to the Moore School as part of the Army's recruitment. They wanted men with electronics aptitude. And um, he took a lab course to introduce people, you know, with physics backgrounds and engineering backgrounds to whatever the Army wanted them to know in electronics. And he realized he had already taught the course. So he sat in the back of the room, the famous story of sitting next to Press Eckert, who's 23 years old at the time. He's the lab instructor. And they're sitting there, their legs are dangling, and they're talking about John Mockley's vision for this first modern computer. And Press is saying, I think I can build that. And so that's where they meet. And um, and Press Eckert, who um, uh, graduated from the Moore School of Electrical Engineering and was was still working there. So the Army said yes in April of uh, 43, began work there, uh, May 31st, 1943. They called it Project X yes. at the time. How aware were the computer women of what was going on behind closed doors in their, in their building? So uh, as the posters would say, loose lips sink ships. So people didn't talk about their projects. Um, they knew that there were other projects going on. Certainly Marla knew that there were radar experiments going on uh, on the roof because she had been calculating them before she became a, a computer for the ballistics research lab. Uh, but he didn't ask a lot of questions, and Project X, or what they called PX, was behind a closed door in the back of, you know, down a, down a back hallway on the first floor, and they didn't go there. They could see that a lot of people did, and a lot of resources and metal and wires were disappearing into this room, but they didn't ask questions, and uh, they just knew something was happening there. That all changed one night when Mockley and Eckert invited the ladies in to see what they had been working on for the first time. What did they see, and what was their reaction? So they invited Kay and her team. Kay was actually working on something called a differential analyzer. It's this huge, long, rectangular analog machine of gears and wires and shafts. And anyway, she was supervising um, two other people. She supervised the team. And it was another way of calculating ballistics trajectories. And they're, they're on a late shift. It's late at night. And John and Press come banging into their basement room. And it must have made them jump. Um, because it's so quiet in the Moore School. And they're like, you have to come up. You have to see what we've done. And so they're convinced. They come up to the first floor. And there's a big metal cage over eight feet tall. And it has these two units, each eight feet tall, two feet wide, and they're wired to each other. And... um, John hits a button on one machine and lights flash and something happens. And they basically said this just did 5,000 additions um, in in a second. And that was extraordinary. They're very excited because that night this was proof of concept. Um, So for John and Press, this meant their ideas about how ENIAC would work and the electronics that would make these lightning-fast calculations um, 
had had you know come to fruition. It, the project was going to work. They were convinced they could do the rest of it. Did its importance dawn on Kay at that point? No, she kind of thought that's a lot of equipment to do five thousand editions. We can do that, you know, on desktop calculators. We can do that on a differential analyzer. She's like, what are they going to use all that for? But nonetheless, she knew something very special had happened. She knew she was kind of witness to a historic moment, um, and she congratulated them. The whole team congratulated them, but they went back to the basement to continue their ballistics trajectory. So next step, as I understand it, is that a number, small number, were uh, chosen to go to Aberdeen Proving Ground to begin to learn how to program this. Tell me that story of what they experienced and what they found there. Okay, but if I might, let me preface it with the engineers uh, and a physicist, John Mockley. The engineers build this huge machine, eight feet tall, 80 feet long, but they get, it's almost complete, and then the question is, what's it supposed to do? It's supposed to do ballistics trajectories. Well, none of them are specialists in this differential calculus equation. So Dr. Herman Goldstein, who is supervising both projects, he's supervising ENIAC, and he's supervising the computers, decides to pick six computers to be the programmers of the ballistics trajectory, which is the contract delivery problem for the ENIAC. And he picks six and says, you know, are you guys amenable to learning something new and working with a big machine, doesn't give them too many details. They say yes, and the first thing they know, they're spending the summer at Aberdeen Proving Ground. Now they are in the swamps of Aberdeen, and they're on this this big base. They're outnumbered thousands to one. A lot of young men are training. And, um, and what they learn there is how to use the only non-unique units, an IBM card punch and IBM card reader. So they learn how to, how to use those. Um, but now, and so they spend the summer, and what I find very special about the summer is while each one knew someone, Marlon knew Ruth, um, uh, Fran and Kay, of course, were close, they, they become close as a team. They, they grow to know each other and like each other. And that's good because when they come back to Philadelphia, they're handed the wiring diagrams of ENIAC and kind of said, figure out how to make it do that differential calculus equation. There's no programming languages. There's no manuals. And so the work begins at Aberdeen Proving Ground and continues in uh, August of 45 when they come back. So what happened with the Los Alamos scientists? So a bit to John Mockley and Press Eckert's dismay, they can't finish and deliver the ENIAC the way they're supposed to under contract. The ENIAC was commissioned to do ballistics trajectories, and it's just about ready just about ready to go. These six computers have been identified. They will program it. And then, you know, just a year or so late, they'll be able to deliver it to any, they'll be able to deliver it to the Army the way they've promised. And they've been under a lot of pressure from the Army to deliver the machine. And they're told, stop. Okay stop. And scientists come in from Los Alamos in the spring of 45, and um, nobody knows they're coming from Los Alamos. They're somewhere in New Mexico. John and Press aren't told this is, you know, our atomic bomb is, is the biggest secret of the United States of the war. And so they come in, they learn a little bit about ENIAC, and then they come back um, in August of 45. By then, we know what's been going on in Los Alamos. By then, the atomic bomb has dropped. And um, they say, we need the machine to do a very, very, very important calculation, and we can't tell you what it is. And they bring uh, 
by some estimates, 100,000 IBM punch cards, some say a million IBM punch cards, to run through a calculation that uh, we think is the trigger to the hydrogen bomb. But it had already dropped at that point. The atomic bomb had dropped. Uh-huh. Still, oh, the hydrogen bomb. The hydrogen bomb was right behind it over the objections of Robert Oppenheimer and others. And so the ENIAC becomes, even in its own test mode, it starts running tests for the next generation of, of weapons. When did they figure out what they had been involved in? The women? Um, years later. I mean, years they had later. some idea who these people were because they begin to appear in the newspapers. But putting it all together and figuring out what they did, um, it's still classified. It is still today? That's my understanding. So when did they get back to the work that they had been tasked with doing? So they help um, in the Los Alamos project. And what's really kind of important for them, because for them, it's this project with these people they get to meet. But, you know, I know their names, but they don't know. They don't know what the project is. But it's the first time they get to see the machine. They've been locked out for the three months that they've been learning ENIAC. They don't have the security clearance to enter the room. I don't know whose brilliant idea that was, but it would really have helped to be able to take the wiring diagram and stand in front of the big machine and kind of see where you plug that cable and where you plug that and what the switch is. They didn't didn't have entrance to the room. So when the Los Alamos problem needed extra people to help wire, which was the way you programmed in those days, it was a direct interface, they invited the women in, and now the women get to go into the room and see ENIAC. And that's that's a big moment for them. They help the Los Alamos project, and gradually they spin off and go back to finishing the ballistics trajectory. Um, Betty and Jean, Marlon and Ruth spin off first. Kay and France support the Los Alamos team for longer, and then eventually everyone spins off to um, finish the ballistics trajectory program. I'm going to ask our director to put that photograph up that we started with, just so we can look at ENIAC again while you're talking about it. So how complicated was it to program this machine? Well, it was complicated to figure out how it worked. Um, And it it was complicated, but ENIAC is, on its face, is, is very understandable. An accumulator, there were 20 of them, eight feet tall, two feet wide, can add, subtract, and store a number. The multiplier does high-speed multiplication. The square root divider, you flip a switch and it goes between square root and division. But keeping track of all of it was one of the key new parts of the ENIAC. In programming today, we don't have to keep track of where our numbers are stored. It's all handled for us um, by the operating system. But here, the women were the operating system, according to Thomas Petzeker of the Wall Street Journal. He says the women were the operating systems of the ENIAC. So they put a number in to the accumulator. They bring another number in, maybe from, um, they've read it from a card, and they set it to add. They have to bring in something called the program pulse to initiate the instruction. And then they have to either store the number there or bring it to its next step, like into the high-speed multiplier. And they just have to keep track of this. And so they actually create what they call peddling sheets to go through line by line and keep track, not just of every logical step, but where every number is, where every program pulse is, every microsecond of the program. You told us at the beginning that it took them thirty to 40,000 hours to finish one of these complex equations. When they were complete with ENIAC, how quickly could it do the same amount of work? So it took 30 or 40 hours to do, do one of the equations by uh, did hand. Did I say 1,000? Sorry. <laughs> that would be beyond comprehension. The war would be over. So 30 to 40 hours to complete it. How, fa- how quickly could ENIAC do it? Seconds. 
seconds. seconds, under 20 seconds. And how quickly along the trajectory of building it did they realize it was going to do that so successfully? Oh, I think they realized it that night when Kay goes up and the, uh, to the, acu- the two accumulator test and it works and it's fast. How many vacuum tubes did the ENIAC have in it? ENIAC had 18,000 vacuum There's tubes. There's my thousand. <laughs> 18,000 vacuum tubes. And you explained that the women got so good with uh, understanding this machine, they could pinpoint when one of those vacuum tubes wasn't working. How did they do that? Isn't that amazing? So um, it, it might help to kind of lay out what they did. So first they designed the logic and the steps of the ballistics trajectory equation. And then they go in and they actually have to put it on the ENIAC, which is kind of what we see in the picture. They're standing in front of the machine, they're setting switches, um, they're plugging it in according to their instructions, um, and then they have to debug it and see if everything's in the right place, is the logic working. Well, it turns out it's not just logical debugging, which is what we do today in programming. They had to do hardware debugging because if one of the vacuum tubes blew, the the program stopped working. And they used their software to figure out what unit, where 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 out of this enormous machine um, the vacuum tube had blown. And that made it very easy for the electrical engineers to go in and swap out the vacuum tube. And that got the women back up to their debugging, their program debugging, which is what they wanted. So they worked together. But the women um, like to say that they could diagnose a problem down to a vacuum tube. So uh, you write that Betty and Jean understood that ENIAC was too slow to find acceptance from the uh, of Aberdeen, and they decided to think through how to command it to do parallel calculations. Explain to me the significance of that. Right. They really want to speed up uh, the, the ballistics trajectory. They know that um, speed is going to matter, how many seconds the calculation takes is going to matter when they demonstrate it to um, what they call the brass at Aberdeen. And so they also know that ENIAC doesn't have to do one calculation at a time, which is the way computers have you know worked for 60 more or more years is one calculation at a time. Really fast, but one calculation at a time. They could have an accumulator working and a high-speed multiplier working and uh, printouts going to you know the card punch all at the same time if you could figure out how to keep track of it. And Betty Holberton, who is a great programming pioneer, she went on to 40 years at the cutting edge of computing, always said that parallel programming of ENIAC was the hardest thing she ever did. So when did the Army say, yes, we accept this? Demonstration day is February 15th, 1946, and the Army probably has accepted it by then, but that's considered the date where the Army opens up ENIAC. It's not secret anymore. It's on the first floor of the Moore School, and they invite technologists and scientists, um, mostly from across the East Coast. They come down, somebody comes down from Boston, people come down from New York, across Philadelphia, and they come to, to demonstration day, and a few test problems are run. ENIAC is described, but the big moment is when the lights go out and the ballistics trajectory is run. And Arthur Burks, who uh, was the master of ceremonies and part of the ENIAC team, uh, announces that the ENIAC had just calculated a trajectory faster than it would take for a missile to leave the muzzle of a gun to hit the target. And everyone knew the world had changed. And I have to assume by then the Army had accepted. So this was February 15th, 1946, when this happened. Uh, What was the role of the women that day? Well, one of the beauties of ENIAC was you could set up a program. And if it worked, 
you just pressed a button. You didn't have to intervene in the programming. Um, it's how we run many programs today. So they weren't seen in all of the work that they had done, the hundreds, thousands, probably collective hours, programming ENIAC. Um, so they're in the room. Some of them, actually, they're in the, the Moore School. Some of them are taking coats of the visitors. Some of them are doing printouts for souvenirs, printouts of the trajectories. So administrative work. Yeah, and they're in the back of the room watching everything, but they weren't introduced. And you said that um, a number of people that were invited to this left confused about what they had seen and that they needed to really figure out how to approach the next unveiling. So tell me that story between February and what happened uh, when the, uh, the the night of the celebratory dinner and uh, am I getting the story off here? There was two events. One when the f- reporters came in, that the women were in the back of the room, and then there was the big public event. We've been talking about the big public ah, event. Okay. So uh, the, the differences between the first one and the big public event is that the Army needed the, knew they needed the women involved in the programming of it. Is that correct? Right. There had been an earlier event on February 1st for reporters and journalists. And um, the idea was to invite them ahead of time. The story was actually embargoed for two weeks. They weren't allowed to publish anything. They weren't allowed to put anything on the radio um, or, or the newspapers. But they came in, they were invited to come in and see, any, see the ENIAC um, and watch it run. But the, the problems that were used were square roots and cubes and didn't seem to really capture the imagination. And they wanted the, the journalists to have a wow factor while they were there. Well, the journalists didn't have a wow factor when they were there, and that they kind of left without that wow factor, but they left with lots of really good detailed sheets um, of describing ENIAC so they could go write their articles. But by the time they got to having the, the senior army people there two weeks later and the senior scientists and the senior technologists of the, you know, of the United States, they wanted that wow factor. And that's when they brought the women back and said, please put on that ballistics trajectory calculation. So the February 15th one, the big one, the demonstration that you just described, the, the uh, people then knew the world had changed. Yes. So what was the celebration like that night? Well, the women weren't there, so I don't have a firsthand account of the dinner that was held, and it was a big dinner. The president of the University of Pennsylvania was there. President of the National Academy of Sciences was there. Um, Captain Herman Goldstein, who had supervised the ENIAC project and the computers, was there. Uh, John and Press and the engineers who created ENIAC was there. All the invited guests um, you know, were there um, if they were able to stay for that night. And it was a big celebration and um, a beautiful dinner. And... Um, you know, they talked about the world changing and new technologies and the Army partnership with the University of Pennsylvania, but um, they didn't talk about individual contributions. That, that wasn't as important to them as kind of the big picture. So the Army funding of ENIAC changed the world. How much did they invest overall in, in developing the, the computer, the first computer? The initial contract was about $200,000. It would increase once or twice by then, so about half a million dollars overall and in, in, in 1940s money. Do you have a sense of how much that would be in today's dollars? About $7 million. So $7 million to change the world uh, in that investment. The other thing that was interesting that you wrote was at the time when the Army said yes to John and Press, they also gave them the rights to this computer. They, they owned the, basically the, the patent, more or less. Was that f- fairly common at the time, that inventors would be able to have their own rights? Because this becomes the next stage of your story. Um, 
It is my understanding it is common, and in fact, the Army urged them to apply for a patent. The only people who can apply for patents are the inventors themselves. You can sign over the rights, but it's the inventors who have to apply for the patents. And the Army... And, and we do this also, not just the Army, the National uh, Institute of Health, the National Science Foundation, fund a lot of basic research in the United States. And we don't keep the patents. We don't control the inventions. We want these technologies to go out and be used. So for the Army, unless it's really secret, um, unless it has to be kept secret, uh, a lot of the inventors will go on to be able to, say, market well, this is a NASA example, Tang, or something like something created for the space program and then sell it to the public. So in this case, um, there were other people inventing new technologies, new high technologies, new computers, and the Army's like, get that patent in, get that patent in. Um, and the Army, of course, um, retained ownership of ENIAC, which would be moved from Philadelphia to Aberdeen physical, Proving Ground. The physical. The huge physical right. machine. Right. And go on to another nine years of incredible use. Um, so the Army kept non-exclusive rights, but John and Press went on to create the commercial computing industry of the United States. So um, the Army succeeded, I think, brilliantly in getting what it wanted and also changing the world. But John and Press had a dispute with the Moore School and, and University of Pennsylvania, which caused them to leave extraordinarily within, I mean, it's not even two months after this huge success of Demonstration Day, um, a dean who has just returned, doesn't know, doesn't really know them, he's just returned from his, his uh, war work uh, that was outside of Philadelphia, and he's like, sign over those patents. And they say no. And he said, I'll give you two weeks to reconsider. And two weeks later, they hand him these pre-typed identical letters of resignation and have to leave. So what happened then? The war was over. Uh, ENIAC had proven itself. John and Press move on. What happened to the ENIAC 6? The ENIAC 6. Well, the Army is smart enough not to send them home. So the war is now over by six months in February of 46. And they've been working the whole time, and they've still been working crazy Army hours the whole time, um, as if it were the war. And so by that time... The government's running campaigns to give a man a job and ask the women to leave the factories, leave the farms, and you know give some you know space back, these jobs back to the men. And sometimes women want to, and sometimes they don't. I know the women didn't want to leave Hollywood, who were recruited there. Um, but in this case, there's nobody who can replace the ENIAC programmers. Who else knows how to program ENIAC who's available to do it? And so the Army says, please stay. Please stay. And by the way, you kind of committed to staying when you first came onto this project. Women are happy to do it. And um, in spring and summer of 45, ENIAC is still at the Moore School. And the Army opens it up to, they, they want to know how far this general purpose programmable idea can go. What is programming? What is this modern programming? And so they invite in kind of a half dozen world-class mathematicians who have what's called 100-year projects. Projects, mathematical problems so big it would take 100 years by traditional methods, you know, we're calling traditional methods being World War II and before, by traditional methods to calculate and say, here, try it on this. And at the time, there was kind of an idea that everyone would learn to program for themselves, and these mathematicians walk in. They take one look at this 8-foot-tall, 80-foot-long machine with these hundreds of wires and thousands of switches, and they're like, who knows how to use this? And they're hooked up 
with the ENIAC programmers who um, become the, their programmers and help them break down their mathematics uh, problems into steps ENIAC can handle and then do the programming and put it on and run it for them. Um, and the field of you know, professional programming is born. And the Army figures out that, yes, this is an extraordinary extraordinary machine. And yes, they want to bring it down to Aberdeen. So they relocate it down there and they relocate some of the programmers with it. In fact, they invite everybody. What was the process of moving something that large off campus to another site? What condition did it arrive in when it got there? Well, I wish we knew more about how it was wrapped up, but it wasn't wrapped up so well because it didn't arrive in very good condition. And it took about six months to get it operational again uh, down at its new home in Aberdeen. And Kay and Ruth were an intricate part of that process of rewiring it, reestablishing it, retesting it, and making sure it was operational. So uh, before we get into the rest of their lives and your association with them, encapsulate for me what these six women's contributions were to Internet history. To Internet history? Well, computing history, more specifically. The women... Well, let me just add that they would go on. Some of them would go on to incredible careers, continuing in programming. Um, But what they did there intrigued you. So what is it that they did there that earned them that spot in history? Oh, I think they were modern programming pioneers. They figured out how to use ENIAC when there were no programming languages, no manuals, and then they helped the Army figure out what they had. They helped John and Press finish up their contract, deliver the balli- a working ballistic trajectory, a working differential calculus equation on a machine that had fewer than 10 words of memory. Absolutely extraordinary. I can't figure out how they did that. Um, I think they were incredible geniuses right from the beginning and programming pioneers. And then they became committed to making programming easier and more accessible for the rest of us. How many of the six stayed professionally in computer industry? Well, five of them went down to went down um, Four of them went down to Aberdeen. One worked very closely with Aberdeen. So they were involved for years. And then um, Kay, uh, Kay married Dr. John Mockley. And so she would stay very, very involved with computing for the rest of her life. And Betty went to Eckert Mockley Computer Corporation to work with John and Press. And Jean would follow her. And they would program Binac and Univac and um, really help create the tools and the foundation for the computers to come. So in the 10 minutes we have left, let's kind of return to you and the ENIAC 6. So you were this uh, student uh, finding this photograph, wanting to know more. What was the path that led you on to actually meeting some of this women? How did you find them and how did you make the connection? So I'd been told they were models and that I should just leave the story alone. But I kept looking at these pictures, and I dug and I found more pictures. And you see them in the book. There are, there are a number of pictures. And the University of Pennsylvania has a digital images collection where you can see these beautiful, beautiful pictures. Some are just women in these pictures. And so I'm like, no, no, there, there's something here. And I started calling around the um, University of Pennsylvania and uh, the professors who had been at the Moore School of Electrical Engineering, and um, no one knew what I was talking about. And finally, I reached Professor Saul Gorn, G-O-R-N. He was retired, but he still had an office there. And I kind of spilled the story of these women and, you know, in the disorganized way, you know, I had as an undergraduate. And he paused and he said, I think you're onto something. 
um, when I was an undergraduate here at the Moore School, there were no, you know, he told me there were no women students or faculty, but yet it was the war and there were professional women working on um, throughout the Moore School doing projects. Some of them were computers, but he thought they were also working on the ENIAC project. And he told me that an anniversary of the ENIAC was coming up and it was going to be a big deal. And would I like a ticket? Would I like to come down from Boston? And I did come down from Boston. And um, there's one more piece of information. Uh, Captain Herman Goldstein wrote his autobiography. And on one page, he wrote about hiring six programmers to program, uh, sorry, six computers to program ENIAC, and he names them. And when I went to the, um, the anniversary of ENIAC, I met most of the women that were in that list. And I'm like, that's it. You know, these are the women in the pictures. And they confirmed that they were the women in the pictures and then began to tell me their stories. So what happened? Did you develop relationships with them? Yes, Yes, I became, um, it was really 10 years later that I became close to them. Um, So I wrote my junior paper, I wrote my senior thesis, um, and I figured someone in the computer history community would tell this incredible story. I mean, they're the ones trained to do it. Me, I went off to Wall Street and was programming computers, and um, then I went to law school, and I was a junior associate in my law firm when a bell went off in my head and said the 50th anniversary of ENIAC has to be coming up. And I called around, and as soon I got to the dean that was responsible for the reunion, it's going to be a big deal, um, it's going to be a huge celebration. And when I named these women... Um, only two of them were invited to the reunion. Nobody really knew who they were or what they had done on any act. They knew what they had done afterwards, you know, like Betty Holperton was invited and, and Kay was invited. Um, but the whole story of what they had done as any act programmers appeared to be completely lost, even to this person that was responsible for organizing all of this. And I thought, we, we really need to do something about this. And so I looked them up. I made sure they were all invited to the 50th. By that time, unfortunately, Ruth had passed away. Um, And Fran didn't participate. I think her husband was very ill at the time. But four came to the reunion. We had an incredible time. And after that, I said, we really have to figure out how to record these stories. I didn't know anything about recording. I'm a lawyer. I know words. And But my law firm had people who knew producers, right? We worked with radio and television stations. And they introduced me to David Rowland an award-winning senior PBS producer, and he thought this is really important, and he produced their oral histories. Later, we got funding for the documentary, and along the way, I became friends with these incredible, incredible women. So this has been a two-step process for you, a documentary. You were in, responsible and involved in, in 19, or sorry, 2014. Yes. That came out, and then the book this, this year. We have a brief clip I just want to show people. Uh, it's called The Great Unsung Women of Computing. Let's watch just a little bit of it. If you could put in one set of weather conditions for one gun and one missile, you could calculate the trajectory and you could figure out what angle to shoot the gun. It's a very complicated equation that has to be solved for each data point, for each range that you want to compute the aiming of the gun at. You, you women, you are the ones who must fill them, who can give our boys what they need. The workload was massive and unrelenting. We had big sheets and, in those days, fairly sophisticated calculators, and we did these ballistics tables. And the firing table would go to the gunner officer, and he would just look up in the table to find out at what angle he would have to set the gun. 
so that it would fire and it would go 500 yards. So that documentary is available if people want to watch it. Can they still find it? It is. Um, Unsung Women of Computing is actually three documentary shorts with the computers, this one being the first one about the ENIAC programmers. And then women created Java and Flash. They were very instrumental on those teams. So we, we talk about them and then a young woman involved with facial recognition, which is amazing. So those three are at Women Make Movies, a distributor in New York. And also, if you go to my website, ENIACprogrammers.org, um, there are links to Vimeo to uh, to rent just the computers. It's a 20-minute documentary short, and uh, we show it all around the country, all around the world, and classes, and um, STEM events, and you know anyone who wants to show it. There is also a Computing History Hall of Fame. Did any of the ENIAC 6 make it into it? Yes. I nominated um, Jean Jennings. She was Bardic by then, Jean Jennings Bardic, to be a fellow of the Computer History Museum for her work on ENIAC and... Um, also converting ENIAC in its next stage to being a stored program machine. And I wasn't sure if they'd pay attention to my application on her behalf, so I didn't tell her I nominated her. And a few months later, she calls and said, I just got a call from the chairman of the Computer History Museum. We're going to California. And we went uh, to an incredible black tie uh, reception, and she became a fellow of the Computer History Museum, one of the few women, alongside Linus Torvalds, who created Linux, and Bob Metcalf, who created Ethernet and 3Com. So it was an incredible evening. So having gotten to know these four women over your work on their story, what was their view of the lack of recognition that they had for what they did? Whenever you talk to a World War II veteran, they don't. The first thing they do is not tell you their story. In fact, sometimes it takes decades. I knew a World War II veteran. It took over 50 years for him to tell us that he was in a concentration camp after after the end of the war. These aren't stories they tell. There's a modesty also about the, the greatest generation, about what they did. So these women went on to live these incredible Full, rich lives. They all married. They all had families. Some, as we've talked about, continued uh, in computing. Some continued in other areas. They were so proud of what they did during the war. They shared their stories with their families, but they didn't seem to feel any need to share it with the rest of the world. Um, so they didn't. And no one you know, really knew except their families. But when I found them and when they started talking about it, uh, once they got going, they kept going. So Kay and Jean went out to Microsoft and uh, did a big presentation on Microsoft's campus. They went to the University of Pennsylvania and did a presentation for the computer science department. Um, Betty traveled. There were lots of other awards, too. IEEE Computer Society for Betty and a few years later for Jean. Um, they were all inducted into the Hall of Fame of Women in Technology International and met the ones who were able to attend the, the ceremony in California, met these you know, thousands of women in computing and women in technology. Um, so they didn't, they weren't upset. They weren't angry about anything. They were asked to contribute to the war effort, and they did. And they were very proud of that and proud of what they had done and excited to tell their story. Um, but then they would just light up again when they got to meet women in technology and when they found out their story was inspirational to others. So in the minute we have left, your work over the decades about their story enriched their lives. They got much more involved later on in, in helping other people understand what they'd done and inspiring others. What did finding that photograph and all that has come through, come from that do for your life? 
it enriched it immeasurably. I mean, these women became my role models and my mentors and my friends. Um, they also opened the door for me so that when it was early internet policy, it, it was hard. You know, it was very hard to do law and technology and, and be the only woman in the room. But I often thought about them when I was the only woman in the room. And I'm like, I have every right to be here because there are women pioneers of, across, not just them, but across early computing history. And um, so they, they helped create the, the, the career, the wonderful career that I've been able to have. Let me tell people about the name of your book so they can find it again. Kathy Kleiman, it's called Proving Ground, the Untold Story of the Six Women Who Programmed the World's First Modern Computer. Thanks for spending an hour with me. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Q&A. And subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. And while you're there, please take a minute to rate and review us. You can also send us an email about Q&A at podcasts at c-span.org. Send me your questions, your comments, or ideas. Your feedback is welcome. 